were you before Jesus changed you by his grace and wrote you into his redemptive story? What circumstances did God use to draw you to himself and cause you to repent? What thoughts, desires, and habits and behaviors have changed as a result of being born again? See, these questions are the building, building blocks of a testimony. And your testimony is a vital part of your Christian life, your Christian experience. It's a story of your personal encounter with Jesus. See, you may feel like your testimony isn't worth sharing because, well, maybe it's just not as extraordinary as others. However, if you've been born again this morning, God has done a miracle in your life. And it is significant. See, your story could win a lost person to Jesus. Your story could encourage the body of Christ or build somebody up. And today, as we examine Paul's testimony, I want to challenge you to begin thinking about your own encounter with Jesus and how you could share it. God has written you into his redemptive story, and he wants to use you personally to bless others. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 9. We're going to read verses 1 through 19. And would you stand with me this morning? Meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked them for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. Well, the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound and didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he couldn't see anything. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. And for three days he was blind and didn't eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go into the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come to him and place his hands on him to restore sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many, many reports about this man and all the harm that he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord answered Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. 
placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming, he has sent me to you that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Father, we love you. This morning, may your word be set before your people like a precious diamond. Showcase its glory. Shine the spotlight on it. That, Lord, we might see its value and fall in love with your word. That's what we need. We need to fall in love with the beauty of what you've said. I thank you for giving me this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we talked about being dead in our sins, that we all intentionally rebel against God. And that because we are dead, we're completely cut off from God. There's no hope for us. But God in his grace, in his favor, brought us to life through Jesus Christ's spirit. And now we can have a relationship with him. Well, we've learned some deep truths over the past two weeks. And I... It can be difficult. I, I have not completely wrapped my mind around God's sovereignty, his grace. My wife mentioned to me just this week, she said, it might be helpful to take a break from these deep theological concepts and just simply look at Paul's life. And when I read about it, I thought, you know, you're right. God, God could use that. So we're going to look this morning at who he was before salvation, how God in his sovereign grace chose him brought him from death to life, and assigned him a task. See, Paul personally experienced each of the truths that we've been studying about in his word, in God's word. He knew the power of God's sovereignty and grace. He had experienced his love personally, and it changed every part of Paul's life. In fact, even after Paul was born again, his life was so radically different, he changed his name from Saul to Paul. So let's get into the word here. Who was Paul before he was saved? Well, like I said, his name was Saul, and Saul was a Pharisee. Now, the Pharisees were a religious sect, a Jewish group. They believed that the oral tradition was just as important as the written tradition. They believed that God not only gave Moses the written laws, but that he explained to Moses how to obey these laws and that these explanations passed down through generation after generation. The Pharisees believed that it was their responsibility to keep these oral traditions and to make sure that the people knew them. Well, not only did they keep their traditions, but they continued to create them. They created hundreds of sub-laws to help themselves and others obey God. But it had an effect that they didn't expect. It created cold, calloused 
dark hearts. Most of the Pharisees had their own sense of legalistic righteousness. They looked at themselves and they thought, well, God, not only have I kept these laws, but look at all the sub-laws that I've, that I've kept. See, I'm righteous in your sight. And this was sad because when Jesus came on the scene, they had so much reverence for their traditions that many of them rejected Jesus. They passionately believed that these traditions were equivalent to God's written word. And so they nullified God's word with their traditions. Well, this morning, I want you to know something. It is spiritually harmful to revere any beliefs or any writings as equal to the Bible. And let me explain to you what I mean. The Bible stands alone. It's God's divine inspired revelation. There's no other revelation, no other writings that compare. I mean, we can get insights from Christian authors, and that's good. We can read a Christian book, and God can use that author in, in our life. But that is nothing, not even on the same level compared to the written word of God. This is God's divine inspired revelation. And we have to be careful. I've heard people say this. Well, I believe the Bible, but I also have other scriptures, other revelations given by another prophet that helps me interpret the Bible. That should be immediately a red flag. Nothing, nothing has the authority that, the, that these scriptures have. Well, Paul was an expert in Jewish law. He was taught by a man named Gamaliel, who was one of the greatest teachers of Jewish law at the time. He was highly respected and revered by the Jews. And Paul was extremely intelligent, right? He rose to the top of the Jewish ladder, the top of his class. One of the reasons why, he had a great energy and enthusiasm for the traditions of the Jewish forefathers. See, in every way, he was an authentic Israelite. He was like a Jewish celebrity. He had everything going for him. He was a tribe of Benjamin. He was ceremonially circumcised on the eighth day. He had that perfect legalistic righteousness. He was born in Tarsus, which was a well-known, very important city. And he was well-known by the high priest, favored by the Jewish high council for his intense hatred of Christians. He personally led the charge to destroy every Jewish person who trusted Jesus, and he relentlessly, relentlessly persecuted Christians. Let me give you an idea of what he did. He punished them in synagogues, trying to, trying to force them to renounce Jesus. He arrested them, imprisoned them, beat them. He voted against them so that they would be put to death. I mean, he was so insane with hatred towards Christians that he even went to foreign countries to persecute them. Hate can do terrible things to a person. Well, in verses 1 through 2, 
Paul, we see that Paul's persecuting the church. He's breathing out murderous threats against his disciples. He wanted to kill them. Well, this is nothing new, right? I mean, Satan has been trying to kill God's people since Adam and Eve. Cain killed Abel. That was God's plan. But you know, as I researched, do you know that there are estimated 300 million Christians around the world that are persecuted today, mistreated just because of their faith? One source said one out of every seven live in a country where they suffer mistreatment for their faith. Here's some examples I found. A woman in India watches as her sister is dragged off by Hindu nationalists. She doesn't know if her sister is alive or dead. A man in, North, a man in a North Korean prison is shaken awake after being beaten unconscious. Then the beatings begin again. A group of children are laughing and talking as they come down to their church's sanctuary after eating together. Instantly, many of them are killed by a bomb blast. It's Easter Sunday in Sri Lanka. These should break our hearts. These are our brothers and sisters who are experiencing this. And the Bible says that when one part of the body hurts, we all hurt. Well, there's hundreds of examples of believers being persecuted. I mean, I could just go on and on. Homes are burnt down. Churches are destroyed. Families have to run for their life in the middle of the night, end up as a refugee in some other, some other foreign country. Husbands are shot in front of their wives. Children are taken and never returned. I mean, these are the things, these are the headlines that are going on right now in our world. We're even witnessing the rise of hostility towards believers in our own country, right? Believers are punished because they refuse to violate their conscience. They dare to hold to a traditional marriage of one man and one woman. They're punished because they believe that God created people in his image and that there's only two genders. You know, imagine that. There's not a gender continuum. Oh, my. Well, it's not our choice. It's God's choice. The truth is, is that people persecuted Jesus. And if you were standing for his truth, they're going to persecute you too. 2 Timothy. Well, and this brings me to a principle, and I... You can write this down if you want. All believers will experience some form of persecution. Again, all believers will experience some form of persecution. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So like it or not, at some point, we are going to endure some kind of mistreatment simply because we're followers of Jesus. And please don't think that we're safe in America. Jesus says, all men will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be safe. So here's my challenge this morning. Resolve now 
how you're going to respond. How are you going to stand under persecution? You know, it's not fun to think about, but we have to be prepared. Will you hate those who mistreat you or bless them? What steps are you taking to prepare yourself to endure persecution? Richard Rumbrand was a pastor after world, right after World War II in Romania. And when the, communist, uh, when, the, when the Russian communists invaded Romania, their first goal was to take over all the churches. And Richard Rumbrandt knew that he, would even, that, he would, that, that he would have to make a choice. He would either join them by preaching the communist party dogma, or he would make a stand. So he sat down with his wife, and he said, listen, this is, this is the predicament we're in. You know, this could, this could mean I would go to prison. This could mean that I would lose my life. This could mean that they would come and take our children away. His wife looked at him and, and said, I didn't marry a coward. Now, that's a woman of God. So Pastor Wumbrand said, okay. They started an underground church. And the whole time that they were doing this underground church, he was memorizing one Bible verse for every day of the year that had to do with fear and overcoming fear. Well, he was eventually arrested. He was tortured for 14 years. Never renounced his faith. And somehow, by the grace of God, loved his captors. Listen to what he says. God will not judge us on how much we endured, but on how much we have loved. Are you ready this morning for that kind of treatment? I'm not. I want to be. The truth is, is that it's God's grace that brought Pastor Wumbrum through that horrific persecution, and it'll be God's grace that brings us to through, or brings us through it too. 1 Corinthians 1.8 says, He will keep you strong to the end so that you'll be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. When well, verses 3 through 9, Saul miraculously meets Jesus, right? There's this light from heaven that shines around him. And, and in a moment, Saul sees Jesus' glory, his physical form. And in another passage, he testifies that the glory is brighter than the sun. Now, just imagine for a second how humbling this would be. For most of Paul's adult life, he's been persecuting the church. He's been trying to wipe the name of Jesus off of the face of the earth. But now, all of a sudden, he's meeting Jesus face to face. And the Bible says that this proud man falls on his face Glory shines into the personal tomb of Saul's heart, and it wakes him up to the truth. You're not right with God. So what ha this, this is what happens to all of us when a person truly meets Jesus. How would you describe your moment 
God woke you up to your sin. I was in a service at five years old. My dad had just preached a message. I can't remember anything that he preached, but as I was sitting there, third row back, literally, I heard Jesus say, come on, Jason, it's time. It wasn't audible, but it might as well have been because it was just as clear as if you would have said it to me. So that day, I went down. I asked Jesus to forgive me of my sins. The light came on. And yes, I wasn't a drug addict. At five years old, I wasn't an alcoholic or a fornicator. But God turned the light on to my own personal sins, even at five years old. And I followed him. And I want you to understand that, something this morning. You may, my, I could share more about my testimony, and, and maybe sometime I will. But you may look at yourself and you may say, well, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't in prison and God called me out of prison. I mean, I really don't have anything to share. No, you do have something to share. If you're born again this morning, God has done a miracle in your life. And he wants to use your personal testimony. So don't, don't be afraid to share it. In verse 4, Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He didn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting them? Or why are you going after my people? He said, me. See, those who persecute us are persecuting Jesus Christ himself. Jesus said, when you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. We're united with him. So any rejection, isolation, loneliness, embarrassment, shame, mistreatment, or even physical pain that we suffer, he suffers with us. Take courage. In everything that you might be suffering as a Christian right now, all of the persecution, God is with you in it. And that's good news. Well, Acts chapter 26, 14, Paul shares something else that Jesus said. In Acts chapter 26, Paul shares that Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. I thought, goad? What's, an, what's a goad? So I had to look that up. And an ox goad was a long pole with an iron tip on it like a spear. And as the ox driver was plowing his field, the ox driver would use the goad to prod the ox in the direction that, the ox, that, that he wanted the ox to plow. Well, sometimes a stubborn ox would kick back against the goad, but they would end up hurting themselves because that would just drive the goad deeper into their flesh. You know what this told me? What Paul was doing was kicking back against God's sovereign plan. Jesus was saying, I've got a plan for you. 
God was driving Paul to Jesus. And even though Paul hated Jesus and wanted nothing to do with him, God still loved him, chose him, and had a plan for him. We're talking about favor here. Grace. Paul was the most unlikely candidate to receive grace. Yet God poured his grace out all over him. And he realizes this later. This is why he's convinced of God's sovereignty and his grace, because he saw it at work in his own life. Paul didn't deserve God's favor. He was persecuting Jesus himself. But in God's grace, he chose Paul as his instrument. God wasn't going to give up on Paul. And Paul couldn't stop God, even if he tried. God had determined to save Paul and use him. Then in verse 6, he says, now get up, go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. And there's a principle here. God has a personal plan for every believer. Let me say that again. God has a personal plan for every believer. See, if you're saved this morning, God saved you to use you. He has a plan for you. Children of God do the will of their father. Jesus said, for I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. You're not your own. Your life is not yours to decide what to do with. You are God's possession. I, when I think of this, it blows my mind because it's all wrapped up in God's sovereignty. But when, what helps me personally to think about it is, is like a race. Maybe some of you out there have run a race. I've ran several races. One race we ran was called Conquer the Gauntlet. And it was through the woods and down this creek. And you had to swim through the creek and climb up muddy banks. Megan got poison ivy, by the way. And it, 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 but you had to climb up these banks. Well, I remember at one point in this race, I was looking around. I was like, where's the path? There was no path. It, it, the, the markers were very, very difficult to see. Well, up until that point, I mean, you, the, the path was clearly defined. I could see it very easily, but now I was like, literally, I remember we just stopped, and I looked at Megan, and I said, where's the path at? And, and it took about five minutes to find it. Well, you know what? Sometimes God's will for your life is very clearly marked. That race, as you're running it, you see the signs. Go this way. Turn this way. Stop here. But sometimes God's will for you is not so clearly marked. And you have to stop. And you have to wait on him. And you have to dig into the scriptures and see what the Holy Spirit is trying to tell you. You have to pray and get the counsel of others. See, God has a race for you personally to run. Are you completing his assignments this morning? Like I said, it's not always easy. But if you are honestly seeking his will and waiting, I personally believe that he will make it impossible for you to miss his will. Are you actively seeking to do God's will and submit to the purposes he's called you?
Where is he calling you? Is God calling you to do something, but you're refusing by kicking against the goad? You're ignoring the Holy Spirit's voice and you're just kicking back against him and you're hurting yourself? If so, submit to God today. You know, there's no better plan than God's plan for your life, even if that plan includes suffering. Now, that's a hard pill to swallow. You mean, God, that your plan might include suffering for me? Well, your plan included suffering for Paul. Well, in verses 10 through 19, Ananias is chosen to minister to Saul. Verse 10, Jesus calls to Ananias in a vision. And I love how he responds, right? He says, Ananias. And his response is, yes, Lord. You know, it's kind of like Isaiah. When, I, when God called Isaiah and he said, here I am, send me. You know, and this is the heart of a true disciple. Ready and eager to do God's will. In my mind, I'm thinking like a junior varsity football player, right? He's on the bench. He's playing backup for the varsity team. And he's just sitting there on the bench waiting for his coach to, to give him that chance to play in the big game. That's how our hearts should be when it comes to obeying the voice of God. That anticipation that eagerness, we're right on the edge of our seat. God, just use me. Just call me. I'm ready to go right now. Well, that's how Ananias was. The true heart of a disciple. Are you, here, are you eager to hear God's call this morning? Are you ready to say, yes, Lord? Well, verse 11, God says, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. See, God gave Ananias very clear directions for his assignment. Go to the house of this guy named Judas on Straight Street. But these were also signs for Paul. You know, this was no accident that Paul ended up at the house of Judas on Straight Street. This was once again God's divine goad, gently prodding Paul back to Jesus. You know, it was common knowledge in Jerusalem that this man named Judas betrayed Jesus, hung himself, and his body broke open. His guts came out. People understood. There was, there was a, a, a severe consequence for betraying the Son of God. And Paul would have understood this. Wait a minute. I'm at the house of Judas? Well, then Paul would have also known Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, where it says, In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. See, there's no coincidences with God. God was using two signposts to point Paul to Jesus again. And don't you just love how God does this? He does it all the time. Let me give you an example. I'm, I'm coming home from work and I'm on hydraulic and I'm sitting at the stoplight and 
up beside me pulls this car or this truck, and I look on the side of it, it says Wilkes Construction. I thought, Wilkes Construction? Well, immediately God brings Kevin Kelly Wilkes to my mind. I thought, well, God, you're asking me to pray for him. And so I prayed for him right then. You know, that's how God's assignments come to us sometimes. We need to be paying attention. We need to be aware of what, God, of what God's doing around us. Well, Paul was. I'm sure he got it. Well, then in verse 13 and 14, you kind of see that Ananias has second thoughts. And when I was, <laughs> this spoke to me. I mean, have you ever had second thoughts about what God was asking you to do? Yeah. I mean, I'll bet if I asked you to raise your hand, every one of us would raise our hands. I know I would. I've had second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth thoughts about what God was asking me to do. You know, we question God's instructions. And and this is what Ananias did. He said, wait a minute, God. You, You want me to do what? You want me to tell Saul? I mean, are you sure? I've heard many reports about this man. See, God's will doesn't always make sense with us, but we're called to simply trust and obey. God works out all the details. All we have to do is say, yes, Lord, and go. But look how God reassures Ananias. He says in verse 15, but the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. See, Ananias had nothing to worry about. God was in complete control. Now think about your own life. Is God asking you this morning to do something that is very scary? And you've argued with him and said, nope, I'm not going to do that. That can't be your will for my life. But you keep on feeling the goad. And he's saying, yes, that is my will for your life. The best thing that you could do is pray this prayer. Help me to accept your will. We've had to do that. My wife and I have had to do that. After ignoring God for 20 plus years? No, that that doesn't fit into our plans. No, that's too scary. No, that can't be. After kicking against the goad for 20 plus years, help us to accept your will, Lord. We surrender. See, God's not going to give up. He's got a plan for you personally and he's going to keep that goad goaded. You know, if that's a word, goaded. <laughs> I don't know. But he's going to keep prodding you. He's going to keep prodding you. Well, as we conclude, there's, there's a real important detail here that I don't want you to miss. I want to turn your attention to verse 12. God says, Saul, God says, Saul has seen a man named Ananias. He didn't say God has seen you 
but he said, seeing a man named Ananias. And this got me thinking. I wonder if God was gently dealing with Ananias' fears and encouraging him to say yes by implying that if he decided to say no, there were many more men named Ananias who God would have used instead. See, God's will for Paul would be accomplished regardless of Ananias' obedience. God was going to have his way with Paul, period. And this is why it's important for us. We don't miss Ephesians 2.10. It says, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he planned in advance for us to do. And this was a good work that God had planned for Ananias. See, God doesn't force his people to complete the works he's planned for them. We do have a choice. It is possible for us to say no to God's good works and his assignments. However, his plan still will be accomplished. We just missed the blessing. I mean, I want you to think about it for a minute. Can you imagine the blessing Ananias would have missed out on if he would have said no? If he would have just flat out refused and said, no, God, I'm not going to go to that guy. You find someone else. Well, God desired to write him into his word, into his redemptive story that throughout the ages, people like us would read of his obedience. You know, this isn't to, not to mention that God chose him to minister to possibly the most influential follower of Jesus of all time. You know, that would be like having the privilege of being the person who God used to lead Billy Graham to the Lord. Can you imagine being that person? Wow. Well, God desired to bless Ananias with eternal fame and glory, but it depended on one thing, his obedience. There's a principle here. God blesses believers with assignments that will ultimately bless them with glory. God blesses believers with assignments that will ultimately bless them with glory. See, salvation is a gift. I'm not talking about whether Ananias was saved or not. We're, we're not saved by the number of times we obey, but we were saved and created to do good works. God has personal assignments for you. God desires to write you into his redemptive story, to give you heavenly fame and eternal glory. And it all depends on one thing, your obedience. Are you gonna obey him? Are you gonna listen to his spirit? What assignments has God been asking you to complete and what blessings might you be missing because you're saying no.